My next guest is a former Ulster, Ireland and Northampton Saints player. His career spanned over 15 years, earning over 350 professional appearances. He recently moved to Texas with his family, which is where I caught up with him on Zoom. You all know who it is. This is Roger Wilson. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Roger. How are you getting on? I've got two and a three-year-old at home. So trying to keep them occupied all day is is the toughest part, really. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, we're kind of lucky, you know, because the weather out here is starting to get real good. And then we've got a... I mean, our guards are not huge, but at least it's something. You know, you can get outside and do a bit. Aye. And um, it's not, it doesn't seem to be as strict as it is back home. Yeah, it's like, pretty not, strict here it's now. Not, it's, it's, yeah, I heard it is, and it's it's not really... It's not enforced here yet. It's more sort of advised. So, yeah, I mean, you can yeah. still go out do your grocery shopping. Uh, it's a bit restricted in terms of they're not letting huge numbers of people in and out. But um, yeah. and, there's, and, there's, a few, there's a few businesses open which are deemed essential and that sort of thing. So uh, yeah. some of the stuff that I'm doing is I still got to be able to work a little bit. But yeah, it's okay. We're coping, we're coping fine. Yeah, so you can do, you can still do meetings and stuff like that, and sort of continue not business as usual, but you can sort of get out and about. And yeah, most of it is most of it you have to do uh, kind of virtually online. But I'm doing a bit of work for a, um, I kind of work commission based for like a rubber surfacing company, which are trying to break more into sports performance, yeah. and they because it's kind of under construction, they're deemed as essential business so they can they're able to run as is you know so yeah, um, yeah. I'm kind of going down there at the moment but yeah I mean it is uh, by and large it is pretty much locked down but there's Aye. still bits and things going on you know yeah yeah I as uh as chatting to your friend earlier Dan Tui Oh yeah. So, so he's still, still over in France, is he? Yeah, he's still in France. So uh yeah, he's he's having a good time of it out there. So right. he was good chat. So he was saying uh, speaking to you this evening, so he, he said to pass on his regards. But um yeah, he was yeah, he, he, he was supposed to be coming out here actually because yeah. obviously he's kind of a limbo a bit with uh, what he does next? No, he's uh, yeah. He was talking about planning to go out there, so you're obviously the man to speak to about that. And he can tell him what it's like. But something I'm really interested about is how people like transition out of the game. So guys who have played for Ulster, what they're doing now. I think that's a really interesting side of things. So I've I've done a lot of like written interviews and stuff like that, but the podcast is fairly new. So I've done I've done a few already, and uh, it's great to have you on board. So thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no worries. I've been listening to a few. Well, I listened to a lot of the. I listened to loads of podcasts back home. Um, I haven't. I listened to one of yours the other day, but uh, yeah, they're, they're yeah. kind of like drying up in terms of the rugby chat. The I moment, know. I know. It's the Baz and Andrew one. It's, it's hilarious because like they're left. They're just talking about movies now, which is funny. Like, <laughs> but it's uh, yeah. uh, they're keeping going. The rugby pod as well. Did you ever listen to that one with Andy Good and Jim? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah, 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 I know they're they're kind of running out. They're just interviewing people all the time, like you know. So yeah, I know it's good though. Like keeps keeps you going anyway. It gives you something to listen to a drive. So um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. So I I love all that as well. So well, the first question I ask most people is, what made you passionate about rugby in the first place? I know that you're inst, but from a young age, were you into rugby? And like, what what made you passionate about it in the first place? Um. Probably like a lot of my family would have played it, uh, so I kind of grew up watching it a lot. Um, 
two of my uncles played for Ireland and uh, my grandfather played for Ireland in the British Lions. So it was kind of steeped in my family quite a bit. Uh, so, you know, anywhere you turn on the TV, there's always rugby or you, you're always been asked to go down to, to watch rugby at Lansdowne Road or Ravenhill or whatever. So, yeah, I just grew up with it and um, started playing it, you know, from about five years old. And and uh, that's really it, you know. Yeah. And then you went on to, to play at Inst. Was that was that the making of you at Inst? I suppose you Inst take your rugby pretty seriously. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, I mean, I never really had any thoughts about going professional or anything like that until until my last year of school. But um, to be honest with you, even in kind of around second or third year in Inst, I wasn't even really enjoying rugby that much. You know, I almost played it because it was like the thing to do and, yeah. you know, family members and all that. But I, I went through a period where I just didn't really enjoy it too much and enjoyed kicking around the football and wasn't very good at it, but I preferred it. But yeah, just kind of whenever you get into the more serious side of it, going into senior rugby in school, um, then schools cup rugby and all that and getting kind of recognised by Ulster schools, our schools, that's whenever it became more of a, a reality that it could be something you want to do after after you finish uh, after you finish school. So, uh, I mean, things have changed since way back then. There was a national academy with about 12 players selected each year. They literally met up Wednesday afternoon. It was it was terrible, to be honest, but it was something. Um, and I got selected for that, really. And, and uh, you know, I, I was due to go over to university over in England. The constraints on this meant you had to stay within Ireland somewhere. So I ended up studying down in Trinity College been part of the National Academy there. One year into that, then I got offered a, an Ulster contract, so the rest is history. Yeah. And see, growing up, obviously, you, you have family connections to rugby, but was there anyone that you looked up to in particular when you are growing up playing rugby? I know you mentioned, like, you, you didn't necessarily think you are going to make it as a professional, but for so many kids growing up in Ulster, you sort of, you dream of playing for Ulster and eventually for Ireland as well. Was there anyone that you sort of idolised or, or uh, made you want to play at the top top level um it wasn't really probably until the very end of my school life sort of 17 18 years old that i i mean i did i was into rugby but i wasn't massively into watching it i know you probably wasn't much even on tv back then but yeah. i wasn't really into watching it that much uh, i was more into kind of playing it so it wasn't really until about 18 years old that um, i think Ulster were actually that was the year i believe also won the european cup that yeah. Um, we used to go to the game. We used to go to the games every Friday night and watch them. And uh, I guess the likes of uh, Wardy, Andy Ward, um, you know, people like him, you probably would have looked up to a bit. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of years down the line, you end you end up um, training with them. So uh, yeah. pick out somebody, it would probably be him. Yeah, it must have been surreal playing with them, having just seen him play in the European Cup a couple of years before mm-hmm. that. But um, uh, yeah. well, and back row. So obviously Andy Ward. Uh, back row player, we always we always back row. You know, you, you switch between your primarily and number eight, but we always sort of back row. Or did you start off elsewhere? No, whenever I was that young, whenever I was in um, kind of primary school and, and first, I think the first year or two into going to Inst, I actually played in the centre, believe it or not. So uh, yeah. yeah, I was, uh, and then and very quickly was uh, realised probably wasn't quite fast enough for the back, <laughs> so it took me into the back row and then. Most of it, yeah, played number eight, a little bit of six. And then yeah. also, whenever I was in and around kind of fifth year, played a bit in the second row as well. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Predominantly, the, predominantly the back row, yeah. 
Yeah, and see, going through those sort of age group, you're talking about going like the system. Obviously, was a bit different, the academy system and stuff like that. Uh, who were your contemporaries then? Whenever you're you're going through the squad, like were there any big names that you would have played with at Irish schools or or Ulster schools? Yeah, I mean, I'd be very close to Rory Best. He would have been. He's actually the blow in school, uh, but he kind of came through all the age grades with me. Uh, Ulster schools and our schools, 21s and all that. Uh, other big names. I mean, the other ones that went to play on for Ulster at that time would have been the likes of Matt McCulloch, Brian Young, yeah. Scott Young, uh, Ian Humphreys, Neil McMillan. They would have kind of been around that age group. And then uh, further afield down south, there would have been, uh, you know, Dennis Leamy, uh, Shane Jennings, Gavin Duffy, those sort of people there. Yeah, so you're sort of in, in direct competition at our schools where you with Dennis Leamy, or did you both slot into that back row somewhere? Yeah, no, he, uh, for the for, for most of it, or um, I know Shane Jennings, for the Six Nations, all a bit weird with the with the age groups for the tournaments, but for the Six Nations or Five Nations, whatever it was then, Shane Jennings was over age, so he played under 19s. So, yeah, it was myself and Dennis, and yeah. I can't remember who the seven was, but... Uh, then whenever we had the Irish schools tour to Australia um, in 2000, then Shane Jennings came down to that. And then he went, I think he went to number eight. So I, I, I wasn't even, even involved in the test squad. Um, it was Shane, Dennis, and I think John O'Connor, I believe. So, uh, yeah, yeah there, would, there would have been direct competition, you know, with, with those boys anyway. But I believe me, would have played six, sure. Yeah. And then I think Shane back then would have played number eight. Oh, right, okay. So, yeah, it's sort of, uh, you came through an amazing generation of rugby players. Um, I, I suppose the same with Ulster. So you came came into the team. Well, it, took, it took a while, but your first stint at Ulster, that was the Celtic League, wasn't it? Well, not not Im- immediately, but uh, that was your sort of first trophy with Ulster anyway. Yeah, first trophy, well, probably about the only one. Um, yeah, yeah. For, well, there was, one, there was the Celtic... Cup, I think, was one of the first years I played. I think it only lasted one year. We won that. Um, but the first, uh, yeah, Celtic League around 2004, 2005, 2006, I think, was our first kind of major trophy. But um, I think the, the, the first year or two I went in, I don't even know if I had a, I don't even know if I had a sponsor of the league. I can't even remember. But, I mean, back then, the first year that I was involved with Ulster, I didn't play. I played, played for Belfast Harlequins, and then I was kind of in the squad training. And, and you would have had the likes of Ebervale and all these kind of Welsh yeah. regions, uh, Monty Creed and all those still. I mean, they were back in it back then. But um, Celtic Dragons, I think, were they called back then as well. So, yeah, there, it, it was all changed. And the very first game that I ended up playing for Ulster was uh, the very first game that Ospreys played. And we played it at uh, Neath Stadium, or Neath, I don't even know if you call it a stadium, rugby ground. Yeah. Uh, and that was 2003, I think. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's all changed. It's yeah. It's all changed a lot since then. Uh, what was it like then coming in the Ulster squad? I suppose uh, different times, just for rugby in general, but sort of as a young guy coming into that squad and there's a lot of established players. What was the atmosphere like? Was it a welcoming thing? Did people put their arm around you as sort of the young guy coming in, or is it extremely competitive? Where the, I suppose, like any rugby player, you're looking to take people's place in the team. What was the atmosphere in that squad like? Oh, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, everyone's obviously very welcoming. The first, whenever I came in, actually, I was, my situation was a little bit, a little bit different. There was a guy called uh, Robbie Brink, who, a uh, South African guy, 
who was uh, ended up getting a, a career-ending injury. So I was um, like literally about a month, I think, into my second year at university down in Dublin, and I got a phone call saying, "Would you like to take, basically, take his full-time contract? Not not his salary, obviously, but uh, there's a slot here for full-time contract, um, and you can change to go and study at Queen's." So yeah, I jumped at it, and I at that stage there, they were probably about six weeks in the pre-season and, and I was you know doing the whole freshers week and all this so I, I literally joined in six weeks in the pre-season and it was uh, it was hell like the first couple of weeks anyway until you get up to speed yeah. um, but, but no they were great you know and um, I think we then went on to some pre-season camping in, in Scotland I think and uh, yeah you just kind of get to meet them over time but, but yeah they were very welcoming um, Especially like, I mean, I kind of go back to Andy Ward. He was he was very good at uh, you know making the young guys feel comfortable and, and passing on anything and any advice and any kind of knowledge and all this and just keeping you motivated, keeping you uh, keeping you going on because it it is pretty daunting. You go straight from you know pretty much playing club rugby to to, to mixing it with the big boys, a big step up. So uh, yeah, they were good. They, they were good at uh, making me feel very welcome anyway. Yeah, everyone raves about Andy Ward, saying what a nice guy he is and what a good leader. So a good man to come into the squad. Was he captain at the time? Yeah, no, he was. He was captain. Um, yeah, no, he's a top bloke. He really is. Uh, and he had a massive effect. I mean, if you look at him, the way he played, kind of around that, to, uh, I guess, the year they, they won the European Cup and the, the year before that, you know, and he just came over from New Zealand. Like, he was, uh, he was heads and... You know, he says his shoulders above everyone else. He was yeah. unbelievable. Like some of the tackles he was putting in yeah. were ridiculous, you know, and ball carries and everything. So um, he was probably a big, a big influence on moving Ulster forward to, to where they were a few years later. Yeah, and and skipping ahead a few years, a few years after, you, you obviously made your debut and then Catholic League success, and then you made the decision to to go over to Northampton. What was the what was the logic behind that, and and what what made you fancy that change to to move over? Well, we were um, there was a group of us who'd signed a four year contract quite early in our career. Uh, myself, Neil McMillan, Neil Bess, possibly Tommy, Bo, maybe a few others. I don't know. Um, which at the time, you know, you're a young kid and you get that. It's, it's great, and then. Everything was brilliant for the first kind of year or two, and there was all the novelty of becoming a professional. And but then, kind of, we we had that um, we had that year we won the Celtic League, and everything was great. But for one reason or other, everything kind of went downhill pretty quickly after that, and it became a pretty miserable place. Um, and um, I was kind of coming to the end of that contract, and I just thought that. Uh, I mean, I personally, I don't, I'm not really home for it at all. Like, I do obviously love Ulster and, and, and Belfast and all that, but I'm always very open to go and try and uh, live in new places and, and see new places. So I always wanted to go away, and I, thought, I just thought it was a good time, like, with uh, the way things were. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the Northampton option came up. They were just coming back up into the Premiership. They were rebuilding. They were signing a lot of young players, young ambitious players, and uh, speaking to a few boys who'd, Who'd, who'd been over there in in the past? Who are now who were then part of the Ulster setup? They they couldn't speak highly enough of it. So uh, it was a pretty easy decision, and um, um, yeah, I mean that was that was really it. It was just Ulster were hit a bit of a rut at the time, and um, I guess you yeah. can be accused of jumping ship and all that. But um, 
it was uh, it was a decision that I kind of made on a personal basis, and yeah. I, I don't regret it. You know, I had a great time over there and, and really enjoyed it. Yeah, and you got you got to play along. They had like um, I don't know when they signed them, but Carlos Spencer was over there, wasn't he? And um, yeah. Yeah, he was over for, um, I actually think he left somewhere near the, the end of my first year, but he, he was over there and uh, for a few years, and uh, Bruce Rahanna, he was a he yeah. was captain at the time, and um, he was amazing as well. He, he, was, he was incredible, like watching those two, never mind never mind the rugby, but watching the, the two in the gym, and you know, even, even hitting boxing bags, like they were just, it, it was just a real eye-opener that going from Ulster here at the time who were, de- who were doing decent enough you know but you go over there and you just see the level of professionalism at that time yeah, it, was yeah. a, it was a step up the way kind of boys looked after themselves and um, those two lads in particular like they were just an incredible mix so that was kind of a, a bit of an eye opener in terms of even getting your diet in shape a bit more yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah it was great and it was um, it was uh, tough going it was actually <laughs> That first year you went over was the hardest preseason I ever did. It was horrific. You know, it was, we were in there probably starting at 5 a.m. in the dot and not getting home until, um, you know, maybe half five, the next, you know, in the evening time. And then doing that six days or at least five and a half days a week. And it was uh, it was a tough, that was without doubt the toughest um, preseason, that first yeah. one. It was, yeah. it was a real wake up call from what we'd, been, what we'd been used to before that. And do you think it was generally a more sort of professional setup in, in with well, obviously with Northampton, but do you think generally with English clubs at the time, Ulster were sort of like, or maybe the provinces were maybe lagging behind a wee bit in terms of the the setup that they had? Yeah, at that time they were definitely. Uh, it didn't take long for Ulster to, to catch up. I don't think it, I would imagine another couple of years after that they would have certainly caught up for speed. I mean, and you just you look at those little things like the the setup and the the gym and you know the access to kind of computers to do um, analysis and all this sort of thing was just a, a big step up. But a lot of that might have come down to kind of finances. Um, yeah. The IRFU are pretty rich, rich in uh, finances at the moment, but maybe back then they weren't as much yeah. before they started having a lot of the European success. So um, yeah, it, it, it was. It was. Uh, I definitely found it a big step up. And I suppose it, it, there was a rebuilding process for Ulster there, and they went through that again uh, about two years ago as well. Like there's a complete rebuilding, and sometimes clubs just need that. Like um, players move on for every reason, and then young guys come through. Or in the case of Ulster, I suppose they signed a spine of, of amazing South African players, and and then your second stint at Ulster then, like. Uh, bit of a, a golden era for Ulster even though we just missed out on, on winning, winning trophies but um, what was that yeah. second stint like? I suppose you're playing with guys what difference did they make? The likes of Johan Muller, Pinar, Vallenberg all coming in and a foe after that, packed with sort of world class players what, what was your second stint like and what, what actually attracted you back to Ulster then? Having enjoyed Northampton so much? Well I was um I was at a period where I was actually had the option of coming back to Ulster after two years of my, four years in Northampton, and I, I was kind of just enjoying it too much out there, and, and decided to stick it out another two years. And uh, it came to the end of the four years, and I had the option of staying at Northampton or going back home. And um, one of the things that kind of spurred me was to I uh, wasn't getting much of a look in with the Ireland setup. I was kind of pushing 30, 31 at the time, and it was like a last kind of chance to give that a crack. 
Yeah. So uh, that that was one of the options. Um, financially, you know, it was a bit more money back at Ulster as well. So you know, people often don't like talking about that, but it was definitely uh, a yeah. bit of incentive as well. Whenever you're coming to the towards the end of your career, it was a, an extra an extra year that Ulster were offering. Um, so that was. Um, that was uh, another added factor, but um, on top of that as well, you know, yeah, just trying to, <laughs> you, you kind of see the success that Ulster had towards the, you know, the, the two years previous they got to the Heineken Cup final, and there's part of you doesn't want to miss out on potentially winning the Heineken Cup yeah, or, you know, a bit yeah. more silver air with Ulster. So a few, a different, a few different options uh, added up to it, really. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was um it was a it was a good move, you know. I ended up having another five years there. Uh, struggled a little bit with the last couple of years, just with kind of getting a bit old and uh, yeah. a few little niggles and all that. But uh, it, it worked out pretty pretty well in the end. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned there playing, uh, mentioned Ireland, and um, you, like you've played for Ireland, and um, it must have been a childhood ambition fulfilled. I imagine for anyone growing up in Ulster, like uh, you know, when I was a kid, that's all I wanted to do. Um, not that I ever had any chance, like, but um, uh, in terms of you playing for Ireland, like class achievement, what was that like? And also, I suppose the question is, you played a very long career by anyone's standards. Like, and do you have any regrets about not getting more caps? Do you think that's something that you? You look back on and go, I think I could have played a lot more for Ireland, or was it just a circumstantial thing? I uh, obviously, yeah. I mean, getting the one cap's great. I, I do believe I potentially could have got more, whether that be you know another half a dozen or another you know fifteen or whatever. I don't know, but I do feel that potentially could have got more based on the, you know the form that I was playing with at Northampton, um, kind of around two thousand and eleven, but. You know, it wasn't to be. It was it's something that's kind of bugged me at the time. Uh, you know, it doesn't really, really bother me. It's you know, kind of life moves on. And yeah. Rugby isn't really part of your life anymore, and it's not really something that affects me anymore. But um, you know, I, I always, I always thought that I, whenever it came to stepping out in the field, that I, I gave everything, and that's kind of all you can do. So there's no regrets from that point of view. I think possibly. Um, I mean, there were times whenever I was called down to the Ireland camp where, you know, kind of last minute or a bit slightly unexpected, maybe call up for injuries, and I was a bit worse for wear in terms of going on, maybe going on a night out the night before. Uh, so maybe at, at times I enjoyed the, the drink a bit too much and didn't turn up in good enough shape to train for that week. Um, possibly that would be a slight regret, but uh, in terms of you look at the the bigger picture, you know. Still, you still ended up playing. The one time you ended up playing for 15 years and all in yeah. all playing rugby, so you, you yeah. can't really, um, you can't really regret it too much. Yeah, I suppose that's that's what you're talking there about balance. Like you obviously enjoyed your time socially as well, and got the new players and, and formed like strong friendships uh, with your teammates. And I suppose that's a huge part of the reason people enjoy playing rugby in the first place. And is that something like, do you keep in touch with those guys, like guys you played with at Ulster? Do you still um, follow Ulster and uh, keep track on how they're yeah. doing? I do, yeah. Um, I try to keep on track as, as much of it as possible. Obviously, there's like a six-hour time difference between here and back home. So, um, you know, some games are a bit more, uh, depending on what you're doing that day, it's hard to keep up. But, 
follow the results, watch as many of the games as I can, and uh, listen to kind of all the podcasts and all that. So uh, keep in contact with a good few of the boys from Northampton and, and also from Ulster as well. Um, but it's just, you know, life moves on. And the, we're pretty busy over here, over in, over in Texas, and we've got a young yeah. family. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of... Still, still kind of making that whole transition into the real world and my wife's got her own business so we're pretty full on you know and we don't have any family out here so you don't you don't get a whole lot of free time to be honest yeah um, I'm sure with you kids to, stuff, yeah. You, yeah you do you try to you try to um touch base with people now and again but um I think everyone's in the same boat life just seems to become more busy the older you get but yeah yeah, yeah. And we, we, we keep in contact with it and it's good to it's kind of frustrating at the minute obviously what's going on there's nothing Nothing really to watch. But, I know, um, I know. Uh, it's, it's hard times from a fan's perspective as well. Like rugby, so it's such a big part of your life. And you don't even think about it. It's just um, one of those things that you sort of depend on happening. It's like a good uh, yeah. stress reliever at the end of the week, and then you're you're stuck without it. And I don't think anyone really knows what to do with themselves now. They're they're now showing these repeats of of like Ulster games, and that's that's all well and good, but you, you do miss. Even the Six Nations is gutted. Like even even though Ireland yeah. weren't doing too well, it was uh, you do miss miss out on that sort of thing. But um, you 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 had a uh, like a, a really long playing career. Imagine like there's loads of guys you would have seen come and go in that squad, and guys who are really talented. Like say David Pollock came in and a really short playing career, but I think he's earmarked for big things. He, he's he's just one example of a guy who. Uh, had his has had his career cut short. You're playing for like 15 years, and I suppose the game must have changed a lot over that time. Is there is there anything that you'd put your finger on what changed in that time uh, playing rugby? Like the game must have changed quite a lot, and over the course of your career, is there anything in particular that you'd put your finger on and say that was a, that was a really significant change in rugby? It's kind of hard to put, uh, put your finger on one thing. Uh, you know, you, you definitely look. At, if you look at the way players, even just sort of their body types or their, you know, their the way they're put together back 20 years ago compared to now, it's totally different, um, particularly in certain positions. So in, in that regard, you might say that, uh, you know, the, the diet and, and the the the, S&C, the strength and conditioning it was a huge factor with the game going professional in the next 10 years after that. But and also the, the amount of time spent analysing. You know, yeah, yeah. we struck out there. There wasn't a whole pile. You might you might have done like a group video session for thirty minutes or whatever. But now you know you're encouraged to get in there maybe three three times a day and just keep analysing. Sometimes you can overanalyze because uh, you know teams teams want to try and uh, you know hide their cards a little bit. So sometimes you can do a little bit too much of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just become. Uh, I, I just think the speed of the game. The, the, Know, the, the physicality of it has just gone through the roof. Um, whether that can be sustained or not, I, I doubt it can be for, for much longer. It just depends how many people you you got prepared to come through and and, and put their body on the line for for you know that period of time and yeah yeah play up what it might do to you later on in life and what the wages are going to be like to to, to make that um, a worthwhile decision. But yeah, yeah. It's, um, I, I could see I could I could see the game kind of the number of games kind of shortening during the season just because people squads aren't big enough to cope they don't have the money to pay that and they'll, they'll probably have to reduce that 
Yeah, and it's interesting you're saying about uh, sort of changing the game and whether the the physical tool is worthwhile. I was talking to Dan too about that earlier, and like he must have read his his statement that he put out on Twitter when he retired, and we had a good yeah. chat, a chat about that. And like, uh, it is a it's the collisions that are involved in in rugby now are just uh, they're mad. Like it's like getting hit by a car probably about five or six times a game. You yeah. get by by massive players and. Uh, exactly. Obviously, you're 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 a big guy yourself, but then there's guys now like in, in this generation of rugby players coming through. You look at some of that South African team, and they're they're absolute monsters. And um, yeah, it's and uh, you can't compare. You can't compare like to you look at you know guys now who are, who are kind of six years old who played rugby back in the day. And I mean, a, a medallion side would probably match them for <laughs> leagues. You know, so you can't yeah. you, you can't really you can't really compare and say. Oh, you know, we're these guys are coping all right. You know, it's the it's the ones who are playing at the moment. What are they going to feel like whenever they're yeah. mid forty? Never mind, they get to kind of sixty or, and and that's not even talking about their, you know, their joints or their, you know, their backs or necks or anything like that. You know, I know flip, not, yeah. not to mention even what what effect it could have in your in your head. All these impacts take nobody knows, and, and only, only time will really tell them that. I know. I want to ask you how you've translated all of that sort of your experience of playing rugby into your, your business in America. But I suppose, I suppose one thing I want to ask you before that is uh, about the psychological effect of rugby. I asked a few a few of the guys this question. Like, it's a huge physical tool. I think you you seem to have survived relatively uh, not unscathed, but uh, without any major injuries. Like. Uh, it, uh, that that really affected your life post post rugby, but uh, in terms of uh, the psychological effect and, and how difficult that must be for players, is is that something that that was tough to take at the time? Whether it be non selection or just the pressure of, of performing week in week out, was that uh, something that players got a bit of support with, uh, or could there could there have been more done back in the day? Because I know I know I think teams have got better about, about that recently, but I'm sure that's that's a relatively recent thing. Um, yeah, you kind of relating to the whole mental health side of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's only, it's only something that's been brought up, really talked about the last uh, five years, and only really seriously probably in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, they have the resources now, I guess, but they, they, I mean, it still take a while for for those kind of the stigma and all the walls to be broken down, and that um, you know. It, it, there's pressure, yeah, and um, people go. People deal with it differently. Um, you know, in certain positions, for example, you know, hookers thrown in or kickers kicking, uh, they're the ones who are really and, and scrutinised a lot. Yeah. Um, and, and especially with social media the way it is now, it, it'll it'll almost put off uh, put people off going on social media. You know, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't be wouldn't be a huge fan of social media myself. Um, yeah. But it would almost put you off because people have the platform just to criticise. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's what uh, you can say it's all part of it. But um, some of it often does go far too overboard, um, yeah. for sure. I would say that I think a lot of people. I mean, this is uh, not related to your time when you're actually playing. Once you retire, um, I think that that's the big challenge uh, is how people use their time whenever they're playing um whenever they're in the limelight whenever they have those connections whenever they have the ability to do prepare for for life after rugby uh 
during that. I think that's something that can really be um, a lot more work can be put into. I mean, I look back at, uh, you know, I mean, we generally speaking, I think it's probably more a little bit changed nowadays, but we, we probably would have had almost half the week where there's a lot of downtime and you can kind of just go and do your own stuff. And I, I must admit, like the first half of my career, I would have just gone home and messed around on the PlayStation or Facebook or whatever, or just done stupid stuff that you weren't supposed to. And uh, I think, if anything, now there, there should be a lot more advice given to people on what to do in their spare time and, yeah. and in their downtime. And even if that's something simple as, I mean, literally going out and uh, and just making contacts and networks even how yeah. it doesn't really matter how small they are but those are the things that are going to make a difference uh, whenever you come to retiring because I think Dan mentioned in his piece that whenever you do retire unless you're kind of one of the big superstar names you, you might get a bit of love for another six years month two yeah. years maybe afterwards but very quickly you turn into um, you know just a pretty ordinary member of the public uh, you know, so you got to, the, the big thing that I've kind of um, found is that whenever you're playing, you have all these, you know, people want to, people want to give you things, people want to help you out and promote you and all this sort of stuff. But whenever you finish playing, um, that's whenever you, you've got to get used to all the rejections, you know, you're the one who has to go and then do all the kind of uh, the, the begging for want of a better word. And um you know, it's tough, and that's something that people have got to get used to very quickly. It took me quite a while to get used to it. I just thought things were going to happen, um, but it's not the way it works in the real world. So yeah, maybe yeah. a bit more sh- shedding a bit, a bit more light on that um, will, will potentially ease the transition for a lot of people. Yeah, and in terms of like coming to the end of your career, there must come a moment whenever during a game or maybe it's training or something like that where you, you just think, yes, I'm done. Uh, was was there a particular moment for you where you're like, right, I'm going to have to pack this in now? Or was it just a gradual a gradual thing? Um, yeah, pretty much every Monday morning coming into training. Uh, we, um, it was just, you know, you get towards the end and you, it takes longer to, takes longer to get going in a session. So you spend so much time I mean, even if it's like a line-out session, you got to go and do your, your stretching, your foam rolling, get your body warmed up, get your back loosened up, your hips, everything. And, you know, and it's just very, very time-consuming and monotonous. And um, then you feel the effects of a game a lot more. So you, you literally only, you only feel just about ready to go for a game the day before the next one. You know, it takes that long. So, yeah, yeah it just gets a bit tiresome after a while. And especially you mix that in with the, you know, doing that in the middle of the winter, walking out, pouring down rain, freezing cold, and you do question it sometimes. Well, what it's all about? But um, uh, yeah, you gotta. Yeah, everyone has their their, their down moments. You just gotta kind of. Um, I I always thought like you know you, you sometimes you gotta take a step back and think how how fortunate you are and how how things could be different. You know, and yeah, yeah. there's so many people with so many more struggles and. And rugby players and, and pressure have gone out to perform. You know that's mild to what a lot of people are going through. So you, you've yeah. got to be fortunate. Yeah, no, I'm sure uh, uh, it's uh, uh, for a guy. Do you know you've had a, a really long playing career, and you actually don't see that much anymore. I think um, there. 
back in the day, maybe it was a different breed or maybe the game has changed, but very few people would, would last the 15 years or, or whatever it was of you playing. And um, just want to finish very quickly talking about sort of like post rugby and and um, I always got updates on you um, about Estonians. Dad would be very involved in Estonians. Um, do you know Bill, oh, yeah. Bill Lockhart? I do, yeah, Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so Dad. The, the social media and all that. <laughs> He's running the propaganda yeah. machine for Estonians still. Yeah, um, he is. <laughs> so he, he kept me updated on your progress um, at Estonians and I always got full match reports from them. So um, uh, so I heard about that side of things. But in terms of like your post-playing career and stuff like that, what, what are you up to now? You tell, I know I've seen your, your business promoted and stuff like that and um, about uh, sort of trying to introduce this um, this tackling system in the American football and how, how it's gone sort of trying to implement that over there did they listen to you or are they, are they quite stuck in their ways in the way that, like they smash people head first <laughs> over there yeah the, it's, hard, it's hard work you know yeah. uh, basically like it's um, to try and explain quickly like they're very there's no technique taught in, in how to tackle or very little until kind of recently in how to tackle in, in American football um, like I was just gobsmacked by by the way, a lot of the kind of players taught, told me how they were taught how to tackle. It's literally just run into somebody. Yeah. It's, almost, it's, almost, it's almost like the opposite of rugby where we're always told to put our head behind. and uh, These guys are always told to lead with their head in front. Right. Um, and, and I just think that because they've got the helmet on, it's going gonna, it's gonna to stop them. So that's why they're having a lot of issues with concussions uh, throughout every age grade, especially the, the old... Um, CTE and uh, chronic traumatic epilepsy or something like that anyway, but yeah. it's kind of a thing that leads to the early onset of dementia and all these things because yeah. a lot of these NFL players were doing this for years and years and years and the helmets weren't as good back then. And um, they've just they've had all the lawsuits in the NFL. So there's just a whole big uh, mess up around it. And they're starting to bring in a little bit of training with it, but still got a long way to go. And I mean, they call it shoulder tackling, that it essentially is rugby style tackling. So um, okay. I've been kind of doing mainly with the younger kids uh, around 12 to 14, um, a few high school kids as well. But the problem is a lot of high school coaches are very stuck in their ways. And yeah, yeah. it's quite, quite clicky, as you can imagine, especially in Texas where it's, it's huge. And, Someone coming from overseas who hasn't played the sport before, it can be hard to break into. But yeah. um, the parents are the, the parents are the ones they they are, they love it, you know, because anything that's going to stop the kids or minimise their kids' chances of getting concussion. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's going okay. It's got a fair bit to go. Uh, obviously, with what's happening at the moment, I had a few a few things lined up for the summer, which are a bit in limbo at the moment. Um, but yeah, it's uh, ticking along nicely. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good idea. Like you just hear so much about concussion in American football, so something has to be done, and it sounds like a good, uh, it's a good business model. I'm not sure anyone has, has really done that before over there. Like um, brought the principles behind tackling rugby tackling over to American football. So fair, fair play to you, all the best with that. The Seahawks, they the Seattle Seahawks, they did it around 2000. I think they brought it in about 2010, 11, and they won yeah. the Super Bowl. Oh, there you go. Well, well, 2000. Or fourteen, so yeah, it's uh, it is something that's done, but it's just not done enough. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, hopefully you're, you're successful in changing that because um, no, it's a, it's a good idea, and um, yeah, I, I hope it goes well because uh, I know it's, it must be tough at the minute, just uh, as as I think it is for everyone um, in terms of uh, getting back to normality, and hopefully it won't be too long. But um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm aware your your meeting's starting in a, in a minute here, so. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. That was really interesting to, to chat to you. And yeah, uh, all the best and best of luck with the business and, and life out there. And I'm sure uh, Dan too will be in touch before too long. I, I reminded him this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, did he? He's going to have a good, hard time getting into the country at the moment. Uh, uh, right enough, yeah. I know. But, uh, uh, he'll be over. I'm sure he'll find a way. If, there's, if I know yeah. Dan, he'll be over here somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll find a way. Right. right. Thanks very much, Roger. Good to speak to you. Good man, Peter. Appreciate okay. it. Thanks and good luck with everything you've yeah. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. See you later.